listening to The RC, your guide to digital cinema, filmmaking, and cutting-edge imaging. Hi, and welcome to this week's RC podcast, episode 101. Yes, our 101st episode. Uh, and I'm actually joined on the line uh, again, as we were last week, uh, though this time we're both in Sydney by uh, my good friend Jason Wingrove. How are we you? We purely separated by schedule. By schedule, yeah. And, and we've actually got a killer schedule. So look, um, Jason, I was really keen uh, to take everybody on a different path this week. We had a phenomenal amount of downloads over last week's, uh, you know, uh, episode people loved it to death yeah. so i thought Launch let's do fest. something completely different <laughs> uh, i actually do think that there's um a risk of becoming kind of uh i don't know fatigued by just going around and around in circles on uh, scarlet and the new uh canon camera until such time as they're out there and we can use them i think we've, yeah. we've talked about them enough what i thought we should do this week and i hope you guys will join us on this uh discussion is discuss story and shooting for story and discuss the Alexa. We didn't discuss the Alexa at all last week. I think it's time the Alexa had some fun. So this is kind of our Alexa episode, but I actually want to case that in. Rather than get into a huge technical discussion on the Alexa, we'll get some discussion going on that. Um, we want to discuss story. And so we actually have two red rooms for you. And uh, Jason, do you want to kick off which uh, of those we're we doing first? Okay, the first one, I guess, touching on Alexa would be Anna Forster, who shot uh, Anonymous, which if you haven't seen, you need to desperately go see. It's uh, quite a beautiful, quite an amazing film, uh, all shot, um, as you've touched on in FX Guide TV recently, Mike, uh, all shot a a lot of green screen, um, but an impressive film where the uh, technicalities of how it's achieved and the low budget it was achieved with do not get in the way of uh, a really interesting story and, and beautiful craft, crafted film. Yeah, so Anna has a pretty interesting uh, discussion. Now, I said we weren't getting technical, but she's discussing the craft in a technical sense. So rather than discussing this or that button on the Alexa, she discusses how she lit for the Alexa, how she found it to work with as a DOP. Um, actually, this is actually Anna's first fully uh, credited Main feature unit. film. Credit, yeah. yeah, but having said that, the work she's done in the second unit on other films that second unit budget was probably more than the entire budget for this film. So it's probably wrong to, to characterise her as a first-time DOP, but uh, feature DOP, because she has done so many uh, second unit miniatures, green screen uh, shoots. But yes, she is completely setting the agenda for this film, and I think it's a, an amazing um, uh, piece, and we'll get to that in a minute. Yeah, um, amazing. First, if you can say, it's a, as you say, it's a bit off to call it her first film, but it's amazing. It's an amazing first full feature for her it's just fantastic and then a second red room is with uh gareth name now gareth is the managing editor or managing director i think uh, i should say of nbc universal in the uk now that's because nbc universal kind of took over carnival films which was an independent production company that uh, he sold to nbc universal i'm thinking about 2008 jace and the pivotal thing that uh, gareth is in town here and certainly in, in sydney to talk about and we sat down with him earlier in the week is Downton Abbey. Now, Downton Abbey is an absolute tearaway hit in the UK. I mean, it literally is the largest production of its type in terms of the audience that it's reaching since, I'm almost going to say, 
uh, I don't know, Brideshead Revisited. I mean, it's it's yeah, huge. it's that huge a scope of a of a uh, project, and yes, as you say, it's got a massive following. It's um, you know, got reasonable following here, I guess, through the sort of a, you know through ABC, etc. Actually, I think it's uh, on Channel Seven here. I think it's on one of the commercial channels. Yeah. But okay, in the UK, but, it got a forty three share on its final um, ep of series two, which is just a phenomenal share. And you know, they're shooting another series again at this stage. Yep, they're going for a third yep. series. They moved from the D twenty one to the Ari Alexa. And yep. so uh, what we've done there is we thought, well, let's talk to somebody um, that's approaching this. He's a producer, of course, not a DOP, but uh, he, he's just like how he basically helps run the show as a, as a showrunner and also the decisions that they make and how they work. Because even though it's a big budget by UK standards, it's not uh, a feature film budget. Um, and they have some you know, limitations like everybody else. Having said that, they're producing some of the most lavish television we've seen in a really long time and uh, certainly will be copied, I think, immensely moving forward. Of course, it also won uh, a lot of Emmys over on the other side of the pond. I think it won six Emmys in uh, 2010 um, uh, for Best Miniseries. Um, I think it has the, um, the Guinness Book of Record, the Guinness <coughs> World Record for the most positive reviews of a show. Um, it's just that much of a phenomenon. Wow. And so a chance to sit down uh, with Gareth is just too good to pass up, and he generously agreed to uh, talk to us. I literally spoke to him. Jace, he just got off the plane. He turned up uh, in Sydney at like about an hour before I met him, and uh, he was really gracious to sit down and talk to us, actually for considerably longer than we'd agreed to in the pre, uh, pre-interview setup. So it was a great uh, chance to do that. So both of those red rooms coming up. And as I say, today's focus is going to be much more on story and on content because after all, as much as we love camera tech, we love camera tech so it can get us somewhere. And I've certainly been critical of people in the past that have published photos of cameras, not the photos that the cameras can generate. <laughs> and, I uh, think I had this white line fever kind of snow blindness moment about uh, a couple of weeks ago, I guess it was probably in the middle of the midst of all of the melee of trying to keep up with all of the launches. And I just kind of think, oh my God, I just need to go to a camera-free desert island for a moment and just kind of like just get away from it. It um, was uh, all-encompassing, not just the fact that there were launches, but the, the fact that that was all anyone was talking about, myself sadly included. Yeah, I will say this though. Um, I am not an exponent of the the cliche that it doesn't matter what the camera is and that a really good cinematographer just can use any camera. I, I yeah, think that's good just saying. bollocks. <laughs> Um, no, I really do. I mean, yeah, no, I completely agree. It's good. It's fun to say, but that's yeah, about it. But it's normally said by people that aren't very good cinematographers. <laughs> cool. um, I think that the, the reality of the situation. Actually, uh, we met up uh, John Montgomery and myself at uh, Stu in San Francisco. We went out to dinner with him, and we had this very discussion, which is that a really good camera uh, is a partner in your filmmaking. And obviously, when you get to know it really well, it really allows you to express yourself. And it is extremely frustrating to write with a pen that keeps on running out of ink or that uh, clots or that spills ink on the page. It's a distraction. It stops you getting the message out and it's not good. Something that really flows well in your hand is a facilitator for getting a really good uh, story written. Now, you know, they wrote the Gettysburg Address on the back of a... Uh, lunch napkin? Yeah, lunch napkin. So I'm not saying it's the only thing, but I do think that having the right tools for the job is what you always strive for in this business and pretending like it doesn't matter is is bollocks. It really, for me personally, and I, I, the reason I was discussing this with Stu is I was referring to a comment he made about his photographic journey with the 5D Mark II because, of course, we were there right after the, the, uh, the Canon launch. And 
I was saying how much I totally empathize with that, that my photography uh, just grew and grew as the 5D allowed me to go and use techniques and do things that I hadn't done before. I'd say the same thing of my experience with the Red One and with the Epic, but before that with the F750, uh, the Sony, and the F900, those were both cameras that really facilitated me growing uh, as a filmmaker. And and so too it is, I think, that we, we turn to the Alexa because this is a camera, uh, in Anna's case, that totally transformed her ability to shoot digitally over film. When, when did you first come across the Alexa, Jase? Uh, well, I think we both had hands-on at NAB two years ago, I guess, Mike, was the first first time, which was really um, one of the first times it had been let out into the wild. And, uh, but I think was... we shot the first footage <laughs> yeah certainly the first podcast uh, ever with it yeah yeah we did pretty much the first footage i think it was quite 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 interesting at that stage that we we're all just kind of just work out even even the guys that were helping us we were all sort of try in the same boat trying to uh working out how to use it and there was a lot of things we couldn't adjust and stuff but basically you know we got it sharp and we got it exposed and we got an image out of it and uh, even though there was no manual and nothing labeled and everything so it was it was off to a reasonably good start in terms of usability and that's actually a really interesting point because it's that camera that Anna shot with on uh, on Anonymous because uh, we literally were at it a trade show. It would have been one of those cameras. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah. yeah, it was. Exactly those. We were at a trade show in, in April in, this is like uh, 2000, whatever it is, nine, eight, whatever it was, and uh, it was so new and they'd brought it to the show to show it and this was before the show opened. They were giving a talk to DOPs and I think you, Jace, just said, hey, could we shoot with it? And they all just looked at each other and went, well, uh, I guess. Yes. <laughs> Uh, no, one, no, one, no one had the uh, nerve to say no to two loudmouth Australians. And so, yeah, we just started shooting with it. And I've got to say, I was immediately impressed. I thought it was a good camera. But I was really impressed, I guess, with the way that it was built. It's just a really solid piece of uh, well-engineered gear. Yeah, I think it's, I've still yet to try and find out, put my finger on why why DPs, uh, established DPs gravitate to it so much. And I think if they just have that comfort factor with it, it's one of those ones they can just easily just sort of pick it up and just feel at home you know and it's that you that the dna of every camera out of the factory before is 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 in there somewhere um and i think that's the same with with the imagery all the way along even though as we've documented it's been um a familiar thread that it's been you know slowly released the shackles of sound and playback and you know frame rates it's uh all the way through that, it's always had um, some lovely imagery. Yeah, it's it is a, a camera that uh, is not too small. I mean, it's not it's not a s- tiny camera. It's not like the Epic or whatever. It's it's a quite a substantial camera, and it gets more substantial if you want to record the raw files because uh, on the SPS cards on the camera, you're recording uh, in a compressed format. You can also tap out of the back of the camera, ninety twenty by ten eighty, and uh, and thirdly, you can stick a codex on it and record the raw. Now, I say stick a codex on being very explicit there because Ari has gone to do a deal with the guys at Codex so that they actually kind of uh, resell the codex box because it is such a preferred option. And certainly that's the way I first shot with it professionally uh, here in Sydney when we were shooting stereo because we had two Alexas in a stereo rig and both raw feeds were going to the one codex box because it's capable of recording two streams in real time. And uh, that was that was a pretty impressive thing. But put a codex uh, that even the you know smaller unit that fits on top of the camera as opposed to the unit that uh, they used on say, uh, well, not that it was a codex shoot, but uh, real steel, whatever they cabled it out to the um, yeah 
thing. It, it actually adds to the bulk of the camera because it's it's um, you know it's quite a solid unit. The recorder of the Codex has, as we discussed in an earlier RC, incredibly guaranteed high performance throughput, which means that it's uh, sort of military grade SSD, and as a consequence, it's kind of robust, heavy, and kind of a little bulky by by standards of what we're used to in other cameras. Yeah. But it's uh, it's rock solid. Um, well, I think that's the other thing that's sort of, you know, has kept it in good stead and kicked it off. It's regardless of, you know, its limitations along the way. It's It has been a pretty rock solid. I can't I can't name anybody I know I've worked with or any issue or heard anybody Twitter, you know, have any issue with any issue with them. I'm sure they're out there, but uh, I don't really... Maybe the fact that it is kept reasonably simple, you know, it is a simple. It is a you know, it has to be said, it's a simpler camera than than Epic. It's simpler workflow, simpler way of shooting, simpler menu system, um, good and bad. You know, it has, it's it's not, it's not five K. It's not it's not four K. It's three K. If you add a whole ton of stuff to it, it's um, and I think if I'm right, anonymous, even that was it early. The Ari Raw probably wasn't switched on. They were probably recording out. Not to the S by S recording out nineteen twenty ten eighty out out through four 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 or whatever out through the SDIs. Uh, no, I think they were recording out. Um, I have to check that, but I think they were recording raw. They were mm. recording. Uh, yeah, because I, yeah, it was a very early implementation. In yeah, fact, that's the were... one that they kind of got um, got uh, got it set up for. Mm. But I think the thing about it, from my point of view, is that it's. Uh, full adoption of the sensor size and the sort of master lenses meant that in the ARRI, you know, line, we really had a completely sort of state-of-the-art valid alternative to to film in digital because, Mm. you know, obviously some of the other cameras I mentioned, uh, with the exception of the RED, but cameras like the Sony ones have smaller sensor, um, the uh, F23, for example, smaller sensor, different depth of field, all those kind of properties. The ARRI really validated uh, in many respects, you know, the need to have a sensor of that size. And uh, it yet sort of maybe, I guess when it came out, both you and I were a bit down on the fact that it was still only outputting effectively 1920 by 1080 or in the raw film like 2.3K. Hasn't really held it back though, has it? Really, it hasn't, there hasn't no. been any holding back at all of of you know of, of the fact that it does you know nineteen twenty ten eighty in most most of its uses fifty percent of its uses probably out there. So let me ask you something else. Um, I wanted to just uh, sort of change tune a bit because I said we were talking about story. Um, do you have a philosophy? If you were in a meeting with me and I was a client e type, um, do you have a philosophy uh, on approaching the lenses that would be a kind of a rule of thumb that if you had an apprentice you'd discuss with them like in terms of shooting wide shooting long lens uh, obviously we know you know what's happening optically there we know the compression and the the nature of feeling more intimate but mm. anna discussed uh, that she uh, as you'll hear in a minute like to go in closer on wider lenses and we discussed that with her a bit um, do you have a philosophy that you see yourself you know I- using I kind of used to, and it's. I feel like, although I haven't changed it, I have this sort of in the in my mind to change it because uh, I was sort of sort of going away from it or wanting to try something different. It used to be more to shoot from, you know, shoot longer lenses and shoot a more sort of observational style, like sort of fly on the wall, shoot through doorways and gaps, and and be more watching 
on the action rather than the feeling of being closer in, almost intruding in that action. But I think, and and yeah, she's when you look at stuff like Anonymous, it is there is quite a lot of there's. It's, quite wide often um, and there's not a lot of shallow depth of field there's quite quite a lot is actually quite deep focus um, and you don't what you don't and I guess it's something one of those things you write in the treatment once and it kind of sticks in your head and it becomes this mantra and until you sort of step away from it and kind of go hang on a second you start to really think about maybe you're kind of wrong the fact that getting in a little bit closer on wider lenses isn't as intruding as I'd once thought, and maybe it's a bit more engaging. You know, it certainly feels that way with, with say, Anonymous. If you're in a little bit closer on wider lenses, it sort of brings you more into it rather than feeling like you're stomping on the intimacy of, of a scene, which, you know, I mean, the both are valid, but I've often wanted, you know, sort of watched on from a distance with a slightly longer lens and kind of viewed it from outside the room like a... Um, voyeuristic I suppose a bit sort of fly on the wall just watching watching on rather than being in it but you know it's too I think it's too valid trains of thought but I now am making a slightly conscious effort to move towards you know the latter you were doing some nice uh, point of view or people discussing to camera kind of shots and I remember we were discussing, I think you were on the 35, and you framed them really nicely yeah. to give some negative space, which is a point mm. I bring up with Anna, and you'll hear in a sec. Um, but on your work, I was, I, I think that the point you made uh, in that particular stuff was your need to contextualize the conversation. Yeah, and I think that's exactly why it really works in Anonymous. The, the idea was to be in close enough to the people that they weren't, you know, that you could you know, see the expressions and, and um, feel the emotion, but wide enough uh, so that you do get that context, you get the background. And I think with this, when you see Anonymous, it is so rich and the art department and the wardrobe and every frame is not just not just about filling with all the cool stuff that everyone invent, everyone came up with or, you know, how wonderful the seamstress work was. It's more filling every frame with, with atmosphere and filling every frame with context and filling it with, um, I don't know, backstory and other players. It was very interesting. Obviously, it, it helps when you are playing, when you are shooting for the big screen that um, you don't have to use such tight lenses. You can afford, afford to sort of play it wider and get that level of detail you don't have to be close up on everything you know i mean it is harder to do a two shot in scope and mm. make it play on super close-ups in shallow the field in a sense because you know you've got not a lot of vertical headroom and you start chopping heads and stuff and it becomes kind of a bit cramped mm. they were using a lot of the frame left to right there was certainly a lot of things where i was thinking gee if they're panning and scanning this later for for 16 even 16.9 are you going to be hard-pressed to get both of these people in the frame? There's one right over there by a fireplace and the other one right over there by the door. And it was really almost every frame was, was using a lot of the space. And it's interesting, I wonder if... It also brings up the issue of lens curvature, doesn't it? Because I find that... Uh, that can really ruin things. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I, really but can. I'm not. That's why you really want... You know, you become, you become conscious of lens curvature curvature somehow you want a wide lens without having the um 
the curvature. That's why they're you know really nice wide lenses that don't distort and and can keep all the lines correct. You don't start to sort of get thrown by the perspective. You don't. You want to capture a nice wide shot, but without being conscious of the fact that this is a wide angle lens. And it's funny, uh, isn't it? Because impressive. In a you sense, know. you can move the camera more easily because it's so much more forgiving on a wide. Yes, nothing's going to bend and distort and weird and change and wrap around the frame a lot. Yes. Yeah, because I mean. For my I guess money, that's gear that's it, getting out of your way, isn't it? Again, it's a tool that, you know, that, that level of lens, which is going to be a $20,000 lens versus a $3,000 stills lens, um, is going to be the case for, you know, a, a, better, a better class of gear letting, getting, letting you get the shot without Though I have to say, I was, to I was incredibly impressed with that G-Class 11-16 that I bought, the PL mount, and it's a little wide at the 11, but... Yeah, Definitely. it doesn't really. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't distort, throw stuff around too much. Fourteen doesn't mil on that is a relatively inexpensive um, option. I mean, obviously it's eleven to sixteen, but if you're sitting somewhere in the middle of that range, pretty wide, not very expensive lens in a PL mount. I think you've got it in a in a Canon mount, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I think the other thing that that is kind of interesting uh, is is obviously in rock clips and stuff. You want that kind of big, low, um, epic kind of thing that you can get from, you know, placing that camera low. Yeah. But, yeah, but generally, once you get that wide lens, you do need to be kind of conscious of being up at, at head level or you do get a quite a, an odd human body kind of bend that isn't very friendly just from the sheer fall off. From Yeah. I think they're, they're using, you know, wide-ish lenses a lot of the time but just sort of backed off. You know, there's a lot of mid shots and mm. it, um, I don't always keep wanting to keep back going back to anonymous but i i only just saw it yesterday so it's really very fresh in my mind you know it's it's one of the, it does sort of stick with you a bit it's not uh, a lightweight you know like 2012 or whatever oh hang on i do like i do <laughs> i am becoming I'm a, I'm a fan of roland emmerich all of a sudden uh well i i've got to say um i'm totally uh a fan of this film. So why don't we actually go to the Red Room now and actually hear that discussion with Anna and then we can come back and pick it up after that. Yeah, yeah, well, that'd be good. You're entering the Red Room. So thanks so much for agreeing to talk to us. We do really appreciate it. Yeah, no problem. I'm glad it worked out. So um, this film is, is really uh, exquisite. It's actually quite a dark subject matter in some respects but there's a tremendous warmth to the visual imagery uh because of partly i guess because a lot of it was candle lit and uh and has very rich textures i'm wondering how you approach the kind of color palette given the emotional content of what was going on in the film yeah i think the color was really important right from the beginning that um it was really the daylight which is i mean you say what sticks in your mind is the you know, the, the warmth and the candlelights, I guess this is maybe what sticks in your mind as the most memorable maybe. But if you really think about there's a lot of this cool, lead-colored, bluish daylight or like the, the kind of magic hour light that comes through those big windows. And, and so it was really clear for us that it was that type of northern daylight uh, that we wanted to portray as natural as possible. And then obviously the only other light source in that time was fire and candles. So what was really important is to keep that 
color temperature contrast between the daylight and the candlelight or firelight. So that was, for example, um, a reason why we really stuck to lighting everything what's daylight uh, with uh, HMIs, with daylight color temperature. So anything when you see the, the candles or the fire, it has the actual color temperature. I mean, there's no shift later in post that we shifted in a certain, in a certain way. But all overall, it was clear that we didn't want to have this like a colorful movie. I think everything is in a pretty um, subdued palette, like the, the interiors and the colors of the costumes. And the same is true for the light. I mean, there is only a very few occasions and they were they were chosen as such were for example there is bright colored sunlight like harsh sunlight uh, everything else is like more this soft uh, soft daylight and the candlelight it's interesting because it's a limited color palette but the, pa yes. but the palette changes because your color palette mirrors the images because uh, oh sorry the seasons because obviously at the beginning of the the main part of the story um it's a warmer temperature in in terms of summer or, or spring but then by the end and and come the queen's death we're in a in a harsh winter that is completely monochrome but even in, in both of those occasions in the warmer period you seem to have like a, such a yellow palette and of course by the yeah. end you have this this yeah. very gray palette yeah, I mean, it, we wanted to make a big, uh, like, a, to differentiate as well between the the young Elizabeth, like the flash, the flashbacks, um, and we obviously we did that with with color and uh, warmer light, but as well with slightly longer lenses, um, and then uh, the older Elizabeth gets, and the more she gets into this. Uh, let's say, austere um, interiors uh, that are dictated by Cecil, the, yeah, the colder it gets. And, the, you know, the later in her life, the more static the images become and the more, the more monochrome, cold the, the light is. Absolutely, yeah. One of the shots that just I found to be jaw-droppingly beautiful, and, uh, and I, I just have to single in on this one scene it's a it's a an early production in a flashback of a play uh by um uh to the queen sorry which is got a set which has a like trees with candles and stuff and it is so warm and so a renaissance in its uh tonal palette i'm just wondering what what was it the what was it about the quality of light that allowed you to get that i mean i just i'm stunned at how beautiful those, that sequence was you're talking about the interior. Is yes, that right? the interior yeah. uh, of the play yeah. in the early child flashback. One, one thing I think I have to add, which uh, is really important to get this, um, I'm calling it creaminess of light. Yeah. A huge amount of smoke in the set. Um, and that we, we had that on every interior set. The only time we couldn't do it was on the green screens. And, you don't really see that smoke now in, when you look at it uh, because by coming down with the contrast later in, in post, the, the smoke almost disappears. But it creates a softness in, 
in how the colors mix. I mean, it's very hard to actually... So what you're doing is basically having diffusing of the light before it, it gets to the camera. It, exactly, that's it. And what happens is you... The, the light seeps into the into the smoke. It doesn't. It doesn't matter if it's the light that comes from the windows or the light that comes from the candles. It has a tendency to, you know, to it's it's seeping into the into the smoke. That was a very um, well. It was for me a completely new approach. But as well, the interesting part about it is that you cannot use any type of backlight, like the typical way you would light something especially like in magic hour or night or something is that you would separate um your actors or whatever in with backlight from the background and that is something because of the smoke we couldn't do at all because you immediately would have felt a light source and it was really really important to me that it does not feel lit it does not feel artificial in terms of like how we feel a movie today is lit uh, potentially so in that sequence uh when uh as a boy oxford is talking to the queen mm -hmm. if i was standing on set would the set have looked quite distinctly different to your eye than what you then got out of taking that Alexa footage and then grading it down in contrast? Yeah, I think, I think you would have been surprised how diffused everything would have looked with the smoke. I think you would have been quite surprised how, at what a low light level it was, how dark it was. Because we, uh, I think this particular scene was shot like at uh, 1,280 ASA. Wow. And the reason to do that is we had the, the actual candles um, gave a certain amount of the light that was used. I mean, it would be, it would be a lie to say we lit the, the scenes with candles. That is obviously not exclusively possible. But... By using an ASA high like this, what, what you achieve is that the effect of the candles are actually visible. And you see that spe specifically in the scene when the little, little boy uh, Oxford blows out the candle at the end. You really see the effect on his face. So now, would you be shooting that at a normal kind of T4, 5, 6 kind of level? Or would you be going wide open at like 2.8 or... No have shot that at a two eight or two eight and a half that right. was the idea for the for the the night the night stuff or magic hour stuff that was at at a two eight but you did or have two. theatrical candles right double wick candles to get yes absolutely more. we had double sometimes triple wick candles but um what what else i used a lot was flame bars on the side like just to kind of keep the consistency of the color temperature and of the moving of the light uh, alive because it essentially reflects in everything that's reflective in any costume or a uh, piece of metal or, uh, you know, if, if you have like shiny surfaces on the, or in the set. So we did use a lot of, um, of flame bars. Did you have, uh, therefore, uh, I think you were recording to the codex, but did you have a, a separate sort of set, set up for the director where you had some control to pull down that on set? Because if it was looking a bit flat on set, that would be a bit yeah. frightening. Well, the interesting thing is what we did is we did not have anything on set to actively control 
the look. What, what we actually did is we established, before we started production, we established uh, five LUTs for different occasions. Um, night interior, day exterior, uh, young Elizabeth, old Elizabeth, different, like, you know, ha- kind of a happy LUT and kind of a somber LUT. A- anyway, so we had, like, different LUTs, and that got applied and that was what the, what we saw, or as well Roland Emmerich saw on the on the monitor he was looking at, and I was using the LUTs pretty much as I would have used a, a film stock. So in the LUT was already everything done in terms of like contrast and and everything. So we got a pretty clear idea how it's going to look like. Now you you made reference in an article that I read uh, to Vermeer's paintings, um, yes. and I totally got that reference when I was seeing it. The seventeenth century Dutch artist, he, he's, his uh, his paintings have such of a creaminess that you were talking about. Um, I presume that you were going for that at the outset, but it must have been a little daunting to have also such a high percentage of green screen sort of slated before you started, because everything about uh, that kind of natural light um, doesn't necessarily easily come from massive green screens. Yeah, that's true. Um, but on the other hand, I think the biggest choice or the most important choice in this way was that we actually lit all our green screen sets as well with daylight, with HMIs. And the green screen... <laughs> it was actually a pretty complicated uh, way of rigging this because we were using we were shooting in this in this big um, stage which wasn't really wasn't a stage and it wasn't quite high enough to hang overhead light so what we actually did is we used white fabric against the ceiling. And then we bounced um, daylight HMIs into that, and then with with sails, um, we, we kind of took spun sails in between the ceiling and the set, either black to t- or dark to take it off or white to take it off. So really, what we did is we created a little bit of a daylight skylight uh, in interior that in the same way we're lighting part of the green screen. Now obviously this is not this is not helping in terms of like creating a perfect green screen and we were battling that a lot because we had you know it's always not enough space between the people and the green screen and not enough heights for like wide angle shots and we shot a lot of wide angle stuff. So this was an ongoing battle. But I think the advantage to not completely separate the lighting between the green screen and uh, the actual set we were lighting was tremendously helpful. And yeah, I mean, I think a lot of those, those scenes were just previously figured out in terms of like how, how they were lit, how they should look like. Uh, in, in conjunction with the visual effects people that then have to build the, the backgrounds. And yeah, also it is, obviously this was uh, this was always the more difficult stuff to shoot, 
uh, than the interiors. That's that's for sure. And your career up until this point, you have an enormous amount of experience in uh, miniature special effects, green screen work. This was not a new area for you. No, not at all. I mean, the green screen part actually was, was uh, no, definitely that was not a new area. What was completely new to me was the, the digital aspect. I have not shot digital before that. So that was, that was the real big adventure. So can I, can I just ask, I guess, the question that is, is the most obvious one. Anna, did you like shooting with the Alexa? Well, I absolutely loved it. And I mean, this is... This is um, you know, this is a sh- this is a short answer to uh, a huge amount of prejudices and 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 fear I had because I mean, if you would have heard me talking three years ago, I would have said, "Well, we'll always shoot film." I mean, who wants to shoot digital? I was always a bit reluctant, and I have to admit, I had prejudices uh, against digital. Maybe. At the time, rightfully so, because digital really came along the way in the last three years. Mm. And I really consider myself very lucky that the digital, for me, uh, you know, shooting something digital didn't happen until basically digital reached a really high level. And that was like two and a half, three years ago. So, yeah, to answer your questions, I, I really loved it. And I think it's going to be very, very difficult uh, to go back to film if you once experience that really pretty streamlined workflow too when it comes to visual effects and dailies and everything. Can you tell me about the glass that you put on the Alexa? You were pretty much shooting, I think, with Ari Zeiss Master Primes. Can you talk about lens choices and... Yeah, uh, I mean, we exactly. We used the, the Master Primes, but as well what I used a lot on that movie was the um, Ari lightweight zoom. It's a wide angle zoom from a 15 and a half to a 40. And it was actually, you know, you're always reluctant to put a zoom lens on, um, but it really, we looked at it on a projector with Ari and it's a fantastic lens and it's really light and small. And what it allows you is to make a quick adjustment you know, a millimeter here or there, and you don't have to change the lens. Roland Emmerich is, is a, a really, uh, f- you know, fluid thinker and, and worker in terms of that you need to be quick to address what he wants. Uh, and working with that lightweight zoom, that was one of the things that, that really made it easier for the whole camera department. You, you have obviously got... Um sort of depth of field and uh, and you use it well. But there are also quite a lot of shots where it seems like you're fairly wide and you're deliberately framing the action to one part of the screen, allowing almost a negative space on the other part. And that gives it, I think, a very cinematic feel. Do you think that's a fair characterization? Do you think that's... Yeah, I think that's... Absolutely. I think that's, that's, that's very fair. And the choice of those wide lenses... Um, I mean, that's something obviously we did very consciously. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it was, I, to me, this was really exciting. This was uh, a way of, of framing and, and as well lighting that was absolutely new and exciting to me. We discussed a bit about the candlelight, but I also wondered if you could talk about a section I don't think you've spoken much about, which is the fire in the theater when the, he's hiding the, um, uh, the parchments and we discover later they're not burnt. Um, because uh, there's a lot of flame light there. I'm wondering how it was lit and also just what 
it posed in terms of just problems for you? Because I think there's rain and there's flames and there's smoke and it just seems like a very complicated uh, lighting setup to maintain being able to understand which character is doing which, yet alone seeing their performances. Yeah, that was uh, that was quite um, yeah, quite interesting because of the rain and and everything. Um, most of the light actually comes from the actual flames and from flames positioned around, like uh, artificial flames, like flame bars and stuff like this. Um, it was another choice at how to expose all that because. Um, we had established a certain way of exposing flames in the film that was that that was always on the really on the bright part that was because we shot at high asa and and at the low stops with low stops i mean like a 28 mm. at night uh, with like either 800 or 1200 asa so we wanted to keep that feel of the fire really having that intensity and brightness so the choice was not to stop down as much as you would have done maybe in a in a miniature shot when you would have really you know you would have wanted to see every every little bit in the flame uh, and at the same time lighting at a very high level the the rest of the set this was a this was actually a lot lit by the by the flames, and the, it, the choice was where to where to actually light the theater in terms of like where the flames would play in the in the set. Because it it, it is overwhelming in a good way because of that level of not just being able to see everything, um, but by the same token. Uh, one thing that I didn't notice in the film is you seemed to... I was never conscious of you really hitting the top end of the dynamic range of the shots. You weren't clipping the whites. You weren't just having kind of sections that were whiting out. So even no. though it was kind of overwhelming, it didn't feel like the camera was overpowered or the imagery was literally technically overpowered. No, that's something we really, um, really, really watched out for. And I would say probably that the fire in the theater is the only place where it, let's say, got, got close to that. But every time, particularly in the in the windows, daylight windows, or when the sun comes through the windows, um, I had um, I had a wavelength monitor next to me. Yep. On on top of the other monitor, and a small monitor with a raw image. And uh, it was something to really we all watched out for and, and um, our <laughs> Timo on set who was taking care of this uh, the, the stuff he was um, he, he always had to kind of as well warn me if he saw any worried coming when it came close to, to uh, clipping because that was something for me that was really really important that uh, we allowed as well later in in the di to to be working with this for example just a, just a simple example in the in the globe theater you have this tunnel to light which is almost impossible is a chimney it's almost <laughs> impossible it's almost impossible to light and then if you want to shoot with a 14 millimeter lens it becomes really I mean, you don't have much to play with where you can put anything. <laughs> there were like, for example, there was one shot where we panned from 
the lower ranks up to at the top where you could see the people playing trumpet in the in the tower there yeah and we we moved the stop during the shoot i mean during during the pen like a, a, a you know a, i don't know maybe one and a half or two stops changed during like actively during the shot but as well it was really important that the sky would not burn out because it to me just being able in di to address the sky separately i wouldn't have had that when when we would have let it clip if how, how much i mean obviously you were involved with the di how much do you credit the look of the film as being a creative grade in di that obviously you were supervising or how much do you feel like you really got the palette and the 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 essence of it in camera now i think what we got on set is pretty much the feel of the film. Obviously, we took advantage of all the amazing things of the eye, and you know, we we, you know, changed certain things in terms of like putting masks in yeah. certain things, and I mean the typical stuff. But the actual look and the color and the palette and the contrast and everything is pretty much what we determined with the LUTs we used at the beginning. Even before the production. So does that mean that you actively? I mean, you must have actively worked with uh, the wardrobe and costume design because so many of these scenes, they're such large uh, costumes because they're physically large that that would have really set a textural and and color palette. And and if you're getting it in camera, you must have been almost uh, you know art directing shoe color, if you know what I mean. Well, it was really great. Uh, Lizzie Crystal is the is the costume designer, and uh, in pre production, she started showing me her stuff, and I immediately realized this is going to be awesome just from the color palette and and everything. But then we started doing the, our first test, and I showed her what I was thinking and what I was doing and what the plan was. The light to use because it's very it's it's not the typical light you would expect on a you know let's say a, a period costume film, and it was really great because she immediately got it that what it's really what's needed is all that sheen and that uh, reflective buttons and uh, broader you know like just those small details that go all the way to especially in those dark, like, leathery costumes, mm. there was always that sheen or that little bit of brass or something like this that allowed that soft light to actually reflect in it. That, that was just, uh, to me, that was phenomenal uh, how, how that worked. And she always, when she had a new, new idea or a new dress or something, she came and showed me uh, way ahead of time. And, and that was actually, that was, uh, that was a great collaboration. I really thought that was, that was uh, yeah, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I just think, as I said, I, I mean, honestly, just breathtaking uh, imagery f and just so textural and so wonderful. Can I ask you a question? Uh, maybe I'm over-intellectualizing this process, but it just struck me that the fact that you were shooting in Germany and not shooting in California or Canada. Do you think that the, just the quality of light from a, from a northern German sky contributed, or do you feel like you really were controlling that and this could have been shot somewhere else? 
Yeah. Now, uh, that is, um, <laughs> sorry to burst that bubble. That is absolutely not the case. I mean, everything obviously was that had this typical northern light was shot on stage. <laughs> um, so this is all obviously shot on stage and uh, it was really created in our heads way ahead of time by looking at those images, by studying the northern light of you know, Vermeers and studying the candlelight of, of uh, De La Tour and so on. That was something that was in our heads, completely independent of where, you know, where we would have shot it for sure. Obviously, what was funny is that when we shot in, in Berlin at the time, during our prep phase, Berlin experienced the longest period of time without sun. I think it was two and a half weeks where the sun didn't come out <laughs> and everybody got really depressed and the news and the television was talking about it and, and so on. So that was, that was, uh, you know, that was funny at the time, but uh, it really, let's say the German light had nothing to do with, you know, how, it, how the film looks. And, and just in finishing up, because we've touched on Germany, obviously uh, you've worked on some very large budget films. The German film industry is is very good, but obviously not a huge industry the way a, a Californian industry is. And how did how did you find the team that you uh, had that had come from Europe as opposed to anyone that you brought over um, that had worked with you before? How, how did you find the crew and the the setup in Germany? Oh, I think the crew is fantastic. I think the team was really fantastic. Um, uh, particularly the, my gaffer was absolutely uh, fantastic, Albrecht Silberberger, uh, and the camera operators were great. And uh, no, I, I have to say, I think that the crew was really, really uh, great. I mean, I couldn't have wished for anything better. That's yeah. Well, take it as a compliment that I thought that the uh, that the that the European light played a factor in your uh, cinematography. Clearly, it didn't. Uh, but, but that's uh, please take <laughs> it as a compliment. <laughs> Maybe it played a factor that I actually grew up in Germany and I was like, you know, not seeing this, the sun that much. No, that's that's not true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it's um, obviously it was a completely, completely artificial created world. You, you said, and just in finishing, you said this was obviously a, a dramatic shift for you going to digital and, and working this way. Uh, so that kind of just in finishing begs the question, it, on your next project, should you go down a digital path like this again? Is there something now that you would do differently because you've, you've learned so much from this digital production? Good question. I mean, yes, I think first of all, yes, I would go digital. Um, and then what I would do different... It, I think that would depend a lot on the type of project. It's very hard to say, say you take... I mean, I learned I learned a lot, obviously. I mean, this was, you know, obviously, this. first of all, this was a prototype we were shooting with. So the actual, let's say, the Alexa that's out now um, already is completely evolved from what the prototype was. You didn't have playback in camera or anything like that, did you? No. But you no. did have quite a lot of local support, presumably, from, from Ari. Oh, you know, it was amazing. I mean, Ari was, 
obviously they were as concerned as we were in the beginning shooting with a prototype. Uh, but they were fantastic. I mean, they were on set, you know, for the first, I don't know how many weeks and were really, they were supervising everything what was going on with the camera. And it was, no, it was fantastic support, I have to say. Well, look, I can't thank you enough for taking time to talk to us. I know that you shot this a little while ago, but of course, uh, audiences have been only starting to enjoy it now. But I, I really do think it's just a spectacular piece of uh, lighting and cinematography and, and uh, camera work. So thank you so much for taking time to talk to us. Well, thanks so much for those kind words. Thank you. That was awesome, Mike. Thank you. And thank you, Anna, for taking the time. That was sensational. I loved the use of smoke is so important and it's really she completely nailed it because it is so hard to get it right get the levels right and as she said there if you backlight the smoke i was constantly i was i found it it was so it, it was a hard film to watch because i was so engrossed in, in i was engrossed in the story but i was also really engrossed in the, the beauty of the images and just working out how they lit it because when you look at it, it's literally there's there's not a source inside. There's a lot of interiors and there's a lot of um, it's literally there's apart from candles, there's no sources inside the room and it's windows and and candles. And once you have literally just windows and candles and moody interiors, all of your you're going to get a really contrasty image. But obviously, what she's done is filled the rooms with smoke, which um, just catches the light and throws it around it almost like throws the light from the windows into the corners of the room and fills up the room but it it's almost i guess the the particles of smoke catch the light and become something to bounce off and they throw it into every corner without without really um i guess as you said if you don't don't backlight the smoke because then you get a picture of some smoke. You don't get a picture well, of you don't get a picture of the wall behind the smoke that is lit by the this sheer fact that the the smoke particles, I guess, are scattering light around. I I worked a little while ago with a director who used uh, this very effectively, though differently from Anna, uh, and that director was you <laughs> in the film that Ooh. you just published. Uh, uh, which we can put a link to, obviously. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. And this is uh, Moving Day. Now. This is a film that we made at PhD, Jason's uh, film, he directed it. And the thing about this, there's a great scene in it, which is certainly my favourite, where we had a diffuser. And so, no, but I mean, why not? I mean, I think we should talk about it because yeah. you, in that case, were lighting the air because you had... Uh, would you want to discuss the shot? Are uh, you talking about the staircase? hallway shot? Yeah, the hallway yeah, to yeah, staircase. Yeah. With the, well, it was a complicated shot. And, Boy, was it? Well, hey, you want to talk about why it was complicated? Because you're a creative genius? Because you complicated it. <laughs> Go on. People can okay. see it because it's online. Now. Okay. Well, there's a mirror. There's an interesting shot in the hallway as uh, someone, as uh, the little girl of the story, enters this uh, her, her new home for the first time. And, you know, she's heading down this hallway to uh, a large sort of wooden staircase. And it's beautifully lit by magically not through our excellent lighting of, of the always amazing Tom Gleason, but uh, just had uh, to be there at the perfect time of day to have sun streaming down the, uh, the uh, staircase. But uh, because we didn't throw a lot of light in there, Tom was putting a bit of smoke in there and that really lifted, um, lifted there. Although there was a bit of it, 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 
the smoke lifted the room where it needed to be and then when it was in the staircase and the sun was coming down that really produced such a huge you know it sounds a bit sort of cheesy in 80s but it really was this quite sort of uh near religious kind of light coming out of the window there that was a bit sort of ghostly or eerie and she's kind of led into the light like going into the light caroline well there's a couple of things though because the, the house was meant to be uh, a house that no one was living in. Mm. So that idea of having uh, particulate in the air True. worked for the story. Mm. That idea of something magical up the stairs worked for the story. And also it made for just a very beautiful beat because it changed the tone from the exterior to the interior where, of course, the magic started. And so you had to have that. So I think I think also the other thing I will actually say is I do actually believe Tom pointed out that on the recce that we should shoot that shot at exactly that time of day. So while he didn't light it... It wasn't luck, it was Tom. Yeah, it was Tom. Uh, It was just deeping and and the value of doing a recce. But just because I think some people don't know, we certainly covered this in the course that you did on PhD about this, but we talk about a smoke machine, but this isn't your, you know, Kiss Army uh, smoke machine that fires out from underneath the stage. (laughs) No, I guess it was a cracker, which I guess maybe is probably the the main thing that you probably use on a set these days. Is because uh, I don't use an awful lot of uh, smoke, but uh, yeah, I think they just basically call them a, a cracker or an oil cracker, where it will um, rather than produce a smoke, it actually is a suspension rather than a. Hmm, it's not a puff that comes out. It's a yeah, it's a it's, diffuser, and that yeah, that kind of and, doesn't. And that's happen. definitely what, what they would have used in yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, anonymous basically because it does, it um, it it lifts lifts the frame rather than just filling it with you know as you say with Kiss Army um, ambiance. Um, and and I think the thing about that is that you did the opposite of Anna because you were using the the diffuser. The, I'm going to call it smoke, but it obviously it isn't. We've established that. Use the smoke to, to catch the backlight. To catch the light to mm. basically be able to film light, which obviously you can't see unless it hits something. Mm. Whereas Anna was using it uh, as a in-air diffuser. Um, do you... do you? And it had a beautiful effect. It made it so painterly. It's just... Oh, yeah. do, you, do you drive diffusers? I mean, obviously, it's one of the few filters that could used be... used to in the film days and really must... Again, one of those things, I must get back into doing it as things get... Cameras getting sharper and, and crisper and it's probably used to be the digital thing you used to use um, in, in the early days of video. Everyone was sort of worried and panicked at how um, how crisp and sharp everything was and everyone started to use... Um, when, when video cameras... I can say video cameras versus digital cameras because they didn't really have a very good dynamic range at all. So everyone was putting diffusion on or, or low-con filters to kind of have a sort of pretend version of smoke in front of your lens to basically to give a sort of um, rubber band paperclip version of better dynamic range or film 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 dynamic range. Um, but then in the, on the in the film on film we always used to use like Promist, Black Promist, White Promist, and um, which were always really nice, and that was more to just really not to um, def- not to. I suppose it was a lot of the time. It was actually to use have a bit of extra depth of field. Like um, there's these. Uh, I'm trying to think of the name of soft R's, what they used to be called, and they were almost like a. Um, I'm trying to think. I can't remember the correct Tiffin name now, but they are almost little micro lenses. Uh, it's uh, basically almost sp- sprayed on acrylic dots 
and it almost like it'll diffuse a tiny part of the frame and then right next to it will give you something sharp. So it, it added diffusion without – it added softness to the frame and almost threw stuff out of focus but gave you enough gaps in the dots to actually keep the sharpness in there, if that makes sense. So it's almost like doing that, that old daggy thing you used to do where you do a soft pass and then a sharp pass and you do that sort of 50-50 mix and try and do this fake kind of weird diffusion to it. So if you're doing that, by the way, the way to do it is with min and max filtering because if you actually like blur uh, – the image and then mix it back with itself but use it based on a min then you'll pick up the blooming of the blacks or the blooming of the whites yeah which way you do it in terms of those of you that are in after effects there's always a very tricky balance of how much how much out of focus you have and then how much you mix it man we are dragging out the hackneyed techniques today my friend well, but I Jesus. see. Are they hackney techniques, or is it time <laughs> well, to revisit them? Yes, is it time no, to revisit them and no, do true. them with a new kind of sensibility? Yeah, because yeah, I mean, true. you would if you told me that you wanted to shoot this thing with tons of smoke in it. You're right. I would have laughed a little while ago. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. I'm not laughing tonight. But for that particular project, it was utterly, you know, perfect and did exactly the job to to to. Rather than having to light that up, like light those interiors up, you actually just lift them with with ambience without having to put an extra source in there. It's quite. It is a. It is a, a hundred. I'm jumping again to anonymous. I'll talk about it in a minute. But it is a shining, golden example of of how to light. Um, a, a film a film set in that era that oh, you yeah, do, like do not class do not masterclass on how to, to light sort of period interiors that do not you know why you can't put a light in there they didn't have them they had candles or the sun and that was it so but this is some of the best work when somebody goes in the opposite direction to what we kind of anticipate as the trend mm. picks up something that you might have discounted but actually does have a nugget in it of 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 creative validity yeah reworks it and represents it and and that's what it takes guts to do, right? Because obviously it's easy just to go with the way everyone else is going. It's easy to make your films look like a bunch of other films. That's not particularly creatively interesting. And that's um, where you stand out, I guess. And that's yeah. what, you know, can um, get to, not it's about acclaim, but, you know, it's definitely easy to stand out if you're, if you're not doing the same as everybody else. Well, let's shift gears now and uh, go to our second Red Room interview. Um, now, as I said, Gareth is uh, incredibly... Um, uh, influential, powerful, but also just successful in his uh, role as a producer. The, the company that uh, I said before is now part of NBC Universal. Previously, had done a lot of work, so this is not like uh, they they hit lightning by accident. They worked their way up, um, and so uh, a bunch of stuff they've done, including programs. Actually, I should say for for the US, but obviously mainly stuff uh, in the UK, like uh, Hotel Babylon and. Um, uh, Rosemary and Time and just stuff over the years. Many of you would know if you uh, outside the US, particularly these are strong films in, uh, in what I'd call the BBC footprint around the world. Um, but nothing compares to the influence that Downton Abbey had when it came along. And ironically, uh, no sooner had it come out with very much uh, a sort of a sensibility that you might relate to the uh, the 70s show Upstairs Downstairs, did in fact Upstairs Downstairs get rebooted Though, yeah. if you're keeping track of this, Upstairs Downstairs was actually initially an ITV film, <laughs> uh, made ITV, you know, at, at the time, very, very popular. Uh, Downton Abbey is on ITV uh, in a time slot, as you'll hear, quite unusual. But 
the BBC then picked up the reboot of uh, of Upstairs Downstairs, which is really Upstairs Downstairs, the next generation. Now, we um, spoke to the DOP of Upstairs Downstairs a while ago, but on Downton Abbey, we wanted to not just focus on the uh, cinematography, which is very lush, but the nature of the production, because it's... Uh, pretty contained show by american standards very small run eight eps with a as you'll hear a christmas ep coming up uh but um really really uh interestingly filmed to give it that lushness in a setting that has transpired from the first to the second series to encompass uh, the first world war and the trenches and in fact that's where the show opens and that's where i start my conversation uh with gareth Um, I guess one of the things I was really curious about, uh, this show is, um, to say phenomenon is putting it mildly, it, it's a really a unifying experience in a way we haven't seen in a long time. And I'm wondering, um, obviously you've had some time to reflect on Series 1 and now Series 2, what do you think is resonating so strongly, not only in the UK but now internationally? Uh, when we were making the show, I thought it would be well-received. I thought it was a good show. I thought it would be popular. I thought it might, in the UK, get... It might be the kind of show that gets a rating of you know an audience of six million uh, people. Um, what I couldn't, none of us could really pr- predict, was the scale of the, the impact of the show. You know, the first broadcast in the UK, and then, as you say, how that that sort of tsunami seemed to go around the rest of the world, really, and uh, and a number of different territories that you really wouldn't have expected to be uh, big consumers of this kind of show. So it was a very curious thing. I think, and I think there are a number of answers. Because, sorry, to just to jump on that, because you said six, and um, for those that don't know, I think it was like what nine point five on the first series and eleven point five on the second. Right? I get very confused with ratings nowadays because obviously we, you know, we always used to talk about overnight ratings, but now, you know, the last few years, so many people now watching and mm. catch up television. You've got, um, you know, you often have a narrative repeat of the uh, episode during the, somewhere else during the same week. You've got people who are. TVing, Sky Plusing, whatever you want to call it. So you have so many different methods by which people are watching uh, television now that you look at the overnight number, but the number by the end of the week when you get this consolidated number could be millions higher. Uh, but it's it, the first series overnight was in, in the realms of 8, 9 million. The second season overnight in the UK has been in the realms of uh, you know, 10 million plus, and they've both, both first and second series been consolidating at 12, 13 million people, and the share has been extraordinarily high. So you're at, uh, you know, 35, 36%, and by the, the final episode of the second se- season, a 40% share, which, you know, is. One of the things really interesting about that is it, it was a, a thing that we were comfortable with a couple of generations ago that that you would have a shared experience and that yes. a significant percentage of the population would actually remember when that aired and then discuss it. And then it became so fragmented. Yes. We haven't seen this kind of unified uh, support behind Not in program. a drama. No, no I was going to say, no. other than sporting no, events. No, so I'm really, right? this is a very long way around uh, answering your first question. I think part of the, you know, there are a number of reasons why I think it's had this impact. Firstly, the subject matter, the English country house genre is one of the few expressly British genres you know there's a, the, there are cop shows made in every country uh, sci-fi was invented probably in england 150 years ago but it's on screen it's an american genre um you know the, the, there are, there are very few genres that you could say that you know what is expressly 
British and, and only really happens there. And the country house genre is manifested in all sorts of different ways, whether it's a Agatha Christie sort of, you know, whodunit sort of thing or whether it's about um, the class system. And, you know, but this idea of a big house that is a, that is a focus um, and where there, is, there are uh, aristocrats who live in it and servants who run the place for them, that is a sort of um, starting point. Uh, in English literature and so on, so we have a very, uh, you know, a, a very recognisable world, um, which we haven't seen on screen in in television probably since the original Upstairs Downstairs series. Certainly at the point that we conceived the idea, we didn't know that the BBC were going to uh, remake uh, the original uh, Upstairs Downstairs series. The irony being that Upstairs Downstairs was an ITV show remade. 25 years later by the BBC, whereas ITV commissioned our show, which is a very original idea. Um, so I think, firstly, the world that we're going into is a recognisable world. Secondly, and I think this is probably the most crucial thing of all, um, most costume drama, in fact, n almost all costume drama on television that's come out of Britain and that British audiences are used to watching and therefore Australian audiences because there's so much British drama uh, runs here as well um, will tend to be a Victorian novel, a Jane Austen or a Dickens and a number of other novelists uh, all those great texts adapted by a screenwriter and turned into a mini-series of between three and ten parts, whatever it might be um, and I suppose the problem with that traditional way of, of, of entering a sort of period, Miller, is that you, ha you are perhaps restricted by the story that's been laid down by a novelist writing 100 years ago. And they tend to, I mean, this isn't true of Dickens, of course, but Jane Austen's will tend to have a single quest for a young woman to find a husband. Or, you know. So you have a very traditional kind of linear storytelling what we were able to do with an original show is to the the narrative structure is highly contemporary it's 20 characters all of their stories are intertwined and and um, you have all of those plates spinning at the same time and the stories are variously dramatic romantic and comedic and all of that those differences in uh, in tone are all put into this melting pot so we have a very contemporary show albeit set in the past, and then it runs on a network that nobody really expected to see it on in the UK, uh, which is ITV, and it ran at 9 o'clock uh, following the results of The X Factor on a Sunday night. So we have a Not very... Not exactly a normal lead-in kind of show for a period drama. No, and it's a very... Un it was, it, it, I would uh, suggest that it is the, the very unlikeliness of all of that that contributed in large part to the success. There you have got watching at 9 o'clock a very, very large number of people who are not at 9 o'clock ready to switch the television off and go to bed. You have a shared collective family experience of you know, three generations uh, uh, you know, watching an entertainment show, and then you deliver them a drama, which hopefully is, is of very broad appeal. Um, so I think a combination of a, a recognisable world that we were going into, but told in a very contemporary style and then scheduled on a network and at a time when a very broad, atypical audience is available to watch it. So I'm going to talk about the styling of it in a second, but just while we're still on this point of the sort of the threads of the fundamentals, could I suggest to you one other possible reason, which I'm sure I'm not the first to suggest, with the exception of something like Gosford Park, which obviously 
you know, he's relevant. Yes. Um, there is a really interesting uh, English uh, class slash servant and uh, employer role that's explored. And, and where I think the show has done very well is that some of those relationships are not what you expect. Uh, somebody that can only open up to their maidservant can't even tell their mother or their sister what's going on. And these um, aren't the sort of typical things you'd expect where upstairs stays away from downstairs, nor are they melodramatically silly where upstairs is constantly sleeping with downstairs and it's, you know, it's, uh, it's a, a comedy. Those relationships mm. and the spanning of, um, of class, I think, is also another uniquely English thing. Yes, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. It's, a, it's another... Um it's another aspect of it. It's one of the one of the reasons why Julian Fellows is the only person I believe who could have written the show. He was the only person I would have wanted to have made the this, this show with um, his understanding about what things can uh, cross the Rubicon, to use an, uh, an expression that Robert Grantham uses in, in in the show, and and which things can't. So yes, you have got a you can have an interesting relationship between. Uh, between Robert and, and another man that he takes his clothes off in front of every day, who's his valet, where there is a degree of intimacy about what they can talk about. Uh, but equally, other things they simply they can't talk about at all. Uh, or in the case of, of Mary, the oldest daughter, and Anna, uh, their Is that the I was referring to? Yeah, that, that, that just... they definitely can share all yeah. sorts of things because they are similarly aged women, um, uh, quite different personalities, uh, there are certain things they cannot do and cannot discuss because they are from very different classes, but they do, they are in that close proximity. Uh, I think the other thing, of course, is that more perhaps than any television show is, um, is the use of subtext and the fact that I don't think in however many episodes we've done now, um, the better part of 20 episodes, uh, I don't think we've really ever had a scene where anyone has said what they mean. Um, so everything is through metaphor and subtext and um, in fact I was just looking at a scene the other day that, in, that, in, that involves a fight uh, and in that fight, um, you know, at, the end, end, at the end of that fight the modern reaction would be what the hell do you think is going on and of course what, what they say in Downson is what time would you like the car call, calling for, you know it's a sort of the polite way of throwing you out of the house. Um, and I think that's very appealing to audiences as well, to you know, to know what's going on and to know things are not uh, revealed in, in in any kind of obvious way. So I think there are plenty of surprises in the show. So let's talk about the styling of the show. Um, the second series, uh, which is finished now in the UK, but uh, obviously embraced a war. Um, and so interestingly, you started the in- the beginning of the entire second series with not a shot of the opening titles. Yes. Um, with a quite a graphic shot, which I thought did two things. Firstly, I was kind of really impressed with the grade on it. I just thought it looked great right out of the gate. But also, it was not where we expected to find ourselves. Mm. Um, was there a thought to... Because I know you change cameras. Was there a thought to change, you know, much stylistically between the first series and the second? Because obviously you want to evolve, but by the same token, you've, you've hit gold, so you don't want to leave it behind. Yes, there was very little we wanted to change from from the first series. Though, um, uh, but I think you... you, you you mentioned the, the, the aspect of the First World War. Obviously, that was a massive element that was not in the first series at all. So there was always going to be another. There was going to be a big chunk of something new. Uh, and I, I think we, we, we approached the war scenes feeling that they had to be visceral and um, and very very different from what was going on back home. And the decision to start uh, on the Somme is really because I think I anticipated 
you know, all around the world, a huge appetite and desire for the show to come back and to be rewarded by the comforting view of that gorgeous house sitting there in that estate. And wanted... We actually held that shot back for quite a long time. That's right. Well, and so we wanted to sort of tease the audience that bit more that we were going to sh- show the, the, the gore and the blood and the mud of the trenches to really shake everyone up to say it's a bit different, it's not quite what you expect and as you say tease for quite a long time before you let the audience I felt sort of relax into their armchairs and go ah we're back at Downton. I mean I know Senate VFX was the effects house on the series but you actually dug up some poor buggers field and actually built a pretty big and actually I think believe historically accurate trench is that right? We, we, we didn't build it from scratch. It um, pre-existed with a, um, a man called Taff Gillingham who we'd worked with before on a production about 10 years ago who is a, a, a First World War infantry expert and um, uh, he gets called on, called on, on, uh, on, upon by people a lot of the time for advice about how to recreate these scenes and he has a, he has a group of men who spend far too much time sort of... Um, in the rain under canvas at the weekends, God knows what their wives think. Uh, you know they're, they're doing. Um, they, they like to sort of recreate and reenact First World War things and sit in mud all weekend. And they have all the perfect kit and they know. You know. So um, anyway, there's been, there's been such a demand for these sort of First World War settings that in the end they um, got some land up in uh, uh, Norfolk or Suffolk rather. Um, and dug it up and built a trench system very very accurately. So we were able to go there and we adapted it for our own needs to suit our own story. Um, but it was a it was a, a an easier undertaking than starting from scratch and building it in a field of our own. So we had the the, the spot and we had Taff and his men who were absolutely expert on uh, you know how how life worked and they were all of our they were all our extras. Uh, so we were able to shoot all of the. First of all, sequences in about a week, standalone, all, you know, all on its own. Uh, we did all of the episode, all of the scenes across the whole series during that week. Look, there are some new set pieces like the the train station and stuff, but a lot of uh, material obviously is filmed between a an actual house, real historical place, and a studio where you've got you know camera traps and yeah. you can move walls, I presume, and, and uh, light stuff. Um, you're shooting this now, uh, you've shot both digitally, now you're on the ARRI. Um, were there any issues with trying to deal with this? Because some shots really benefit enormously from the authenticity that comes from shooting on location. But of course, as, from a production point of view, it's like a nightmare of logistics and light, for that matter. Um, does, does it become a juggling match? Because obviously a lot of stuff is contained in rooms, and yet, as I say, you benefit enormously from being on some really beautiful locations. I think the starting point was just a, a, a pragmatism. We were never going to be able to build um, the, the state rooms of, of a stately ha- house of that kind. That would just, for obvious reasons, that would be impossible. Um, and uh, equally, when you go to look at any of these stately homes, the um, basements where the kitchens would have been and all the servants' sort of working areas, they've tended to have been adapted over the years and they've got cafeterias in them and... <clears throat> and the upper f- floors where the servants would have slept, well, there aren't servants anymore in these houses, so they're, all, they're usually half derelict. So in any house that we decided to make the show in, we, we always knew we were going to have to build the kitchens, the servants' hall, the servants' the, the below-stairs stuff, and we were going to have to build the attics. Um, 
And in fact, it gives us a degree more control than it, um, in, even if we were able to shoot everything in, in one house on location, we'd then be on location for six months and that would probably, that would, that, there would be more conflict, I think, between us and the owners of such a property. Um, so the system we've ended up with means that we film about a third of the show at Highclere Castle uh, in Newbury, about another third back at the studios where we've built all of the sets, and then uh, the final third is, is, the, is, the, is the village and the, and the other guest locations that we go to. So that's the sort of production model. And yes, it, it, we, there, there is a more formal uh, shooting style to the state rooms and, and to the above stairs and what the family do. Um, and yes, there are no ca camera traps, and there are no, there's no trickery up there. We're using a real house, but you can't, you can't even attach lights to a wall because no, we can't do anything like that. Valid. So we have to use all those helium-filled balloons to get lights up, and uh, all the usual sort of because you're you're working in a place where you know, uh, on one wall there is an original Van Dyke yeah. uh, painting that's priceless, and uh, um, um, you know it's one of the the library that is one of the main rooms that we that we film in is one of the finest libraries in the land. I think, and uh, so you you adopt a way of working there, just as when you're at the studio, you're you're in something that's been designed um, designed entirely for filming, and that. From production cycle, are you trying to keep? I mean, because you mentioned you shot all the World War One stuff kind of in a, in a week, I think. You said. Yes, but leaving that aside, the episodic nature of it, are you trying to work your way through episode one? before you hit two, before you hit three, or are you trying to shoot everything at the castle out of order? Because you think about it in terms of the actors and... No, we don't, we don't um, cross-board the whole thing, and that's partly because as an episodic series we don't have all the scripts ready and finished before we start filming. Um, so we, even if... That, that would obviously be quite an efficient way to film it um, financially, but it would be pretty punishing on the directors and the actors um, if we were able to do that. But in any case, we don't have the scripts ready. So we do tend to cross-board a couple of episodes at a time. So we'll tend to do one and two together and then three and four together. And is that so a different on. director on each ep? In um, which case they're having to juggle with each other? Or? We, we usually uh, have directors working on two episodes. So they'll right. do one and then the other. And there'll be a bit of cross-boarding between the two episodes. So they've got to... Um, the directors and the actors have got to usually hold a couple of scripts... Um, uh, at any one time. As I said, I, I think the new series looks really good. Just, I mean, like, uh, technically, uh, the grade and stuff is, is superb. Um, is there anything about that end process? Because from a really, uh, unlike a feature film, this isn't a director delivering their vision. It's, it's, it's a house style. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. so I was just wondering, like, how you came to that. Because right out of the gate, I thought, too, had a real... Um, solidity to it because the blacks were strong, the imagery was strong, it's very graphic and of course there's a lot of light in, the, in contrast to, uh, to the scenes in the war. Um, did, you, did you look at that at all or was this really just a carryover from one? Um, well I'm very pleased you noticed that because um, that's, you know, that's, what we, that's what we'd hope. I mean, we, we, we shot the first series on the camera that we felt that we could afford um, and we were very happy with the results. Uh, but we had a debrief with, with the colorist at, uh, having finished the first series. Um, we knew by this point we had a massive worldwide hit and that it was, if we decided to spend some more money on the camera, that would probably be a, um, very justified. So we decided to invest more money and to get a more expensive camera. We felt the show was, it would have been wrong not to get the best camera we could. Um, and we, as I said, we debriefed with the colorist and we said, look, <clears throat> this is what we liked about the look and this 
is what, uh, what we didn't like about the look, and this is where we think we can enhance it. And it was him very much saying, you know, this is the camera we really need for the new series. Because I've got to say that it may, people may, uh, and I'm certainly not doing this, people may suggest, well, you obviously can get anything you want, you get a worldwide hit, and it's, you know, huge, and it's rating um, like uh, people only dream of. But, you know, this is the same camera as, they sh- as Scorsese just shot Hugo on. It's, this is a, you are shooting feature film episodic television. There, there must be some pretty heavy constraints, even though everyone must also imagine that you have no constraints because you're producing a yeah, lot I mean, of material. Yeah, it's still a TV budget. Yeah. And, okay, it's a, it's a relatively high television budget, certainly in... Uh, I mean, it, 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 it's not an expensive show at all in American terms, but in British terms, it's quite an expensive show. Um, I, I, don't, I think that one of the main functions of a, of a producer is to decide what those priorities are. What are the things that you have to spend the money getting right and you have to throw your resources out? And what are the things that you can actually have a very good result for, for less money? And making those calls in the right way, is, I, th- I think, is um, quite crucial. The, you know, the ca- going back to the camera thing, that is, yeah, we've got the most expensive camera that we, we could, but... There's another way of looking at it, which is since we've gone digital, the cost of the cinematography as, as, a, as a, a line and item in the budget is minuscule now compared to what it might have been in the past. We, you know, we used to have a thing called film stock that was a, a you know, massive area of any budget and you were concerned how many cans you were sending back to the laboratory every day. Well, it's now immaterial. It has been for several years how much you're filming and a line item, a, a, a very expensive line item, the bu- line item in the budget has essentially been, you know, thrown away. Does it affect your shooting ratio? Because obviously you don't have any stock. I mean, do you feel like there's because the episode does have to have a certain discipline? I've never understood the concept of um, shooting ratios anywhere. I never okay. understood what it what it meant. Uh, um, I should probably explain what I mean by that comment. Um, uh, it was a. I think probably a term invented by the BBC or something, by some accountants in the 60s. I mean, anyone who, who, who thinks that you can try and end up with a good end product when you've got some sort of uh, production manager standing there saying um, you, the director has got to shoot it at, at a ratio of 10 to 1 and that's all we can afford, you know, that it, you're not going to get good results. I, I, you, know, you want those cameras to be rolling the whole time and, and capturing every moment they possibly can um, so you have more choices. Well, then the, the metric for your budget has to be shoot days then, right? Yeah, exactly, you're right. There has to be some metric to work out what you're going to spend, spend on film stock. But, I, yes, I would always adopt the... Um, How many days are you shooting an app, roughly? About twelve days an episode, but really? you know the the more pragmatic way is how many rolls of film do we are we going to realistically get through every day and make sure you budget for it um, and uh, and know that it 's a good thing when the cameras are rolling and uh, in the old days they would have been exposing film, but now they 're just rolling on you know very very cheap tape so it 's not a it 's not an issue did you have long between sh- finishing principal photography and those episodes airing in other words, how long was that editorial period to get the cut right? Um, was it fast turnaround? I, I imagine you had some time. You have some time in the earlier episodes because the whole thing, um, the air date is worked back from when your final episode is delivered. So by the time you get to the later episodes, you're, caught you, up. you're, 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 really, you're, you're only delivering 10 days before really? the air, air date. Yeah, but if, if the last episode is ready 10 days before the air date, then the first episode is usually available several months before the air date. 
Well, look, thanks so much for talking to us. And I believe I can congratulate you on a third series being announced. Yes. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. And do you have a penciled time that you've discussed for that third series? When is that? In the story. Calendar-wise. Yeah, well, I was actually also in calendar-wise, but by all means, story-wise oh, well. Oh, well... Uh, um, the third series will see uh, the inhabitants of Downton um, uh, come into the 1920s, um, and we start shooting in February, um, and we'll be on air again um, in the UK in, uh, aut- in the autumn of next year. Uh, before that's on, though, we have a two-hour movie that's on at Christmas on Christmas Day in the UK, right. um, which is a-, a link between the second season and the third season. Wow. Well, I'm sure that'll go uh, very well. And of course, being a um, UK time of year, that's actually in a ratings, as if we had the old style ratings, that's really like a hotspot for the UK. Yes. Um, down here, of course, in Australia, no one's in, indoors in summer. I there. was saying to somebody earlier on today, being, uh, we, I remember us all being told at school that in Australia, um, children get to have barbecues on Christmas Day, and us all thinking that was... Fascinating. Um, yes, but well, you know, we watch a lot of television because it's dark. After we've had at our barbecue o'clock. and we've been in the pool, we'll come <laughs> in and watch a Christmas special. Thanks so much for talking to us, appreciate it. Okay. Uh, again, another one, right? Cracker Mike, thank you. And excellent. Thank you, Gareth, for taking the time. I know, obviously, your time is pretty precious when you came down here for Spa, so we appreciate that. Um, and so Gareth's the managing director of the production company, right? I mean, I, I'm really impressed, actually, not belittling managing directors but but seems to have a really uh, excellent you know finger on the pulse of of the shoot yeah i mean obviously we weren't going to try and grill him on you know lutz or something that the camera was using but nor should we and and actually quite frankly uh, it would have been a wasted opportunity to because i think he gives that perspective on a whole show and quite frankly um the thing about episodic television which is different i think from what we had with anna and and the feature is that episodic television is uh, really a producer's game. It's not a director's game like mm. uh, features are. And also, when you're rolling, as he was saying, two eps at once, and yeah. you've got one director per two eps, but that means there's four directors over the show, um, you have to develop systems and you have to go along with the system. You can't have each director kind of walking in and go, well, I feel like doing the whole you thing know, in I think I should just all with snorkels. Or exactly. It's all upside down in zero gravity. Yeah. But um, yes, they have to be more the keeper of the, the, the style or the keeper of the... Of the uh, uh, the the look and the feel of the place. I guess the other thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, are you trapped by the success of a phenomenally huge first, sort of first season? Because, um, and I've worked on episodic television, and we had this very problem. That's like the, do you do what you did before because that was hugely successful, but then people yeah. are going to say you haven't moved on. Do you do something different and then be accused of, oh, it was much better in the old days? When in reality, it's probably just people remember it being better in the old days. Um. <laughs> Yeah, shows well. What happens, and I don't think this is probably the case with these guys, but uh, is that the budgets get whittled down, and you end up having this forced thing to let. Less we want more. We want you've got the 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 uh, the station saying we need to do more with this, and where can we take it? And then you've also got the budgets whittling. Yeah, though, uh, as Gareth kind of get, he didn't say it, but he kind of intimated that they basically had the budget go the other way, basically like they could open up the checkbooks. Hence, moving to what the, he claimed was. The bestest camera, the best yeah. camera going, which was the um, the Arri. Though yeah. I don't think the D twenty one is a bad camera, um, but definitely the uh, the Alexa, I think, is working better for them. Well, um, yeah, do, moving a, um, I mean, obviously they had a lot of they, they had sets, but they had a lot of uh, location work as well, of course. And yeah, D twenty one is not uh, not the smallest. You know, I mean, the Alexa's not not 
entirely compact, but the D21 is definitely not um, uh, a compact, um, nice, you know, easy to throw around camera in my which, book. Anyway. Which brings up a, an interesting point, actually, that just occurred to me as you were speaking, which is really, um, and I, I guess you find this as well, but we've talked before about, you know, big camera means everything scales. The crane is bigger. The, you know, everything is bigger. Uh, mm. The mat boxes, the yeah. supports, everything sort of scales with it. But I guess one of the things is uh, location work, and you obviously do a lot, uh, it's setups per day. If you can move quicker, you can get more setups in. And Yeah. And, and also, it's just, yeah, just being able to shoot, it, it, particularly if you're in tight quarters. You know, we talked about the fact that you're shooting, you're shooting in cars and just like time just seems to just stand still. It is just in, inordinately um, slow to start moving around in cars when you've got a or, heavy... Or, or in this case, carriages. <laughs> or carriages, exactly. Well, I was going to say no, carriages. They still have yes. cars. So they, had, uh, they had cars and carriages. Yes. Yes. Um, um, but yes, moving a D21 around in cars and things will be, you just want to shoot yourself through the skull. It's, but just becomes so, if you want to, I just want to move a little bit to just, just an inch to the left. I'm just seeing my reflection in something or uh, I'm just not quite seeing that second eye of the person there in the front seat. I just want to move an inch to the left and that becomes a complete de-rig, re-rig, uh, waiting, uh, de-waiting thing. Yeah, yeah. I think... Um I think that the flexibility of the ARRI and the grading opportunities um, are really good. I, I do think, though, that it, it is – and I think the latitude is good. I mean, let's face it. Um, but I think the strength of it if, it, if we criticize it for its sort of size a little, I think the strength uh, that we get to, which we haven't discussed on this app, is that ARRI has sold the film industry that they are the simple workflow option. Yeah. Um, and a lot of people away from these series now are shooting on the S by S cards and then immediately editing them. And surely you've you've come across that just this idea that uh, it's all too hard, but the Arri's easy. Uh, yeah. Well, you you are sort of fighting. You know, you're always fighting. You're always fighting fighting something. If it's not budget, it'll be schedule or or you know the post house's experience with something. And you know, as established as Red is, there's still a lot of you know, a lot of companies that um, don't really even know what a Red Rocket card is, or or are quite amazed when you tell them, you know, you what what needs to happen workflow wise, and and how much data they're going to get. They're always still quite surprised. There's a lot of companies still a bit kind of, you know, stuck in stuck in stuck in time, really. So, you know, there is a lot of pushback when you start talking. You're going to need to do this. You're going to need to get all these latest drivers. You're going to need to make sure every single one of these you got this. You got this. Um, you need to get the latest version of the um, your Red Rocket card updated. You're going to need to get a Red. What's a Red Rocket card? You're going to need to get um, update um, your Red Cine X Pro to the latest version. And it's, if they have dabbled in Red, I'm, I'm using Red as an example because obviously that's the other end of the, the, the spectrum, um, or one of the ends of the spectrum. Is that uh, no? Even if they've dabbled in red, it's so changeable that uh, they can be up to speed with something one month, and then you come back and you know deal with them again, and and it's all of a, all of a sudden the wheels have fallen off because you know nothing's up to date, and you know the files have changed, the camera software revision, it's spitting out slightly different files, and you know all of a sudden 
you know, then they've got no sound or, you know, because they're just not uh, keeping up to it all the time. And simpler files and files that, you know, that don't need a lot of transcoding are always going to win with producers who uh, have a known agreement with a post house or a known sort of already struck a deal and and you're trying to come in and rock the boat with, you know, some some newfangled piece of kit that's going to generate twice as much data and need you know hours more transcoding um yeah it's 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 you know often pushing pushing it uphill and you know uh, if your cameraman loves loves the alexa and your post place you know, oh prores yeah we know what that is you know it's it's sometimes a bit of an unwinnable war to to, to push in another direction all right well look i really enjoyed having this chat jace thanks for that um no problem. Well, it's a good time to do it because it's been an inordinately slow and welcomely uh, and, and much welcomed uh, slow release and news and gear a couple of weeks anyway. So, yeah. Now, we normally do a Twitter shout-out and a, and a link, and we actually have one for you this week, which is kind of something that's just, just come out, just kind of coming to our attention. Um, I must admit I put, got put onto this by a friend, and we have permission to mention it because it's now gone public. Though we're going to try and follow up with it more in the coming weeks. So all we're going to do right now is just is give you the URL and the and the the link. But do you want to explain what I'm talking about, Jace? Yeah. So this is an initiative by uh, TED, which uh, have, has always had a bit of a uh, an, an, a bent towards advertising and its worth or its um, how to do it better. There's been a couple of fantastic um, talks they've done, but now they're sort of getting into a, a, a bit of a deeper initiative into advertising. Uh, Ads Worth Spreading, which is a really interesting um, uh, initiative from them. It's, uh, I guess it's a competition, uh, Mike, to um, uh, push good advertising, promote good advertising. Yeah, right? and, and we've... We've seen a few of these already, and I think we've even discussed them. I think one of them in the first round is the Gilux Walls, for example. Yeah, Gilux Walls, yes. Uh, but also which Born, is fantastic. Born of Fire, which was in the Super Bowl uh, with uh, Eminem and Chrysler. But look, uh, this is something we will discuss more because, um, as I said, uh, we've got a, a friend who's involved in it who put us onto it in the first place. Um, we're going to give you the link to the TED website to discuss it. And it's, it is just worthwhile, in, if you're in commercials, taking a few minutes to see some really good work and see how people approach things from, a, from an idea-driven uh, point of view. And then uh, we've also got the two Twitter feeds of two of the key people that are organizing it. Now, they're not very well known, uh, I guess, outside the TED community. But if you're really interested in this, if you get on their Twitter feeds... Um, you can really tap into because uh, they're kind of organising it behind the scenes. So uh, we're not giving away any secrets. This is um, all public, but it's just there's two really good people who are uh, making a difference. Uh, one in New York, and I think the other one's quite a well-known TED speaker uh, and an artist. Yeah, but, an artist, yeah. Yeah. So we'll give you those two links in the show notes. Um, but I'm going to spell out their names for their Twitter feeds right now because I don't want to get them wrong. So just. Uh, <laughs> The first is J-I-N-A-L underscore S-H-A-R. And the second is R-A-G-H-A-V-A-K-K. And the website that we've been referring to, this idea of the ads, ideas worth spreading, um, is ted.com slash initiative slash A-W-S, as in uh, ads worth spreading. And that'll give you a rundown of what's going on. There's stuff already happening. Um, first round of winners out, and we just hope that uh, we can 
get further involved in this? Because anything about promoting creativity and, of course, more than just gimmickry, uh, some of these things are technique-driven, like uh, character animation stuff. Some of these are just massive uh, creative initiatives. But in well, all both, cases... You know, Dulux Walls is sort of both its technique, but it also has an interesting message. I think there are other, the other thing they're trying to do is... is talk beyond 30 seconds you know a lot of these like Dulux Walls is two minutes and uh, the cries the long version is two minutes and two four three four five minute uh, so this is really something close to my heart something beyond 30 seconds or something that you can actually get your teeth into as, as an idea and it's really time to uh, tell a story and and and, um, and make a connection as they say so, yeah some of these are almost events aren't they really um yeah, yeah, some mini, you know, mini docos, which I think, as I've touched on before, I think is to a large degree, and I'm very, very happy to ride that wave. It's is heading in this direction. More people are sick of ads in their traditional form, and uh, well, I am anyway. And of course, this is exactly what we were talking about. Uh, it's very appropriate to this week's. Uh, RC, because this really is uh, story-driven, idea-driven, and uh, content-driven. Uh, but I will say that some of these are also beautifully shot. Um, Born of Fire is, you know, exquisitely kind of executed. And so I think that's also important because I think sometimes people feel like they have to be anti-production yeah. value, and I don't think that's exactly. true. No, and all of these are sort of camera agnostic. They're just shot nicely. And, yes, there's some techniques, but, you know, they could be done any any number of ways. But... Uh, at the heart of all of them is uh, as a really great idea, and there's an interesting uh, a message. And I like Ted. I just think I think there's a lot of really good stuff in Ted, and uh, and I like that that there's a kind of a non-commercial nature to some of it. Uh, sure, but I like yeah. This is a good turn too, though the fact that you know we can't you can't ignore advertising. So well, let's just let's just let's just highlight the best of it, and and like I guess behind a lot of Ted, let's look at how we can improve things, how, how we can make things better or, let's, you know, let's highlight the good stuff. Mm, absolutely. All right, well, that's it for this week. Uh, for our 100th and first episode, Jason, uh, Jason, thank you so much uh, as always. It's been Thanks, a pleasure. Everybody. Thank you. Thanks, um, everyone. Where can, can we find you, Mike? I'm going to say where we can find you because uh, people who have watched along and who have seen the, uh, Anonymous, you really, regardless of your VFX or non-VFX bent, the your your VFX app VFX uh, FX Guide TV app on Anonymous it was sensational and oh good uh, glad you liked it yeah oh, sensational because you cannot and you know I was watched the whole film and seventy five percent of the time a majority of the time you cannot t- t- tell to the extent of of how what is being created in green screen in this film there is a massive effort and okay, it is without a, giving away the plot that scene at the near the end where there is a courtyard involving a lot of shooting you know what i'm talking about yes i could not believe that was a green screen set i was like get out of here when i was uh, with the guys in la and and they're fans of fx guide and i was touched when they were like saying you know how great it was to be doing the show they they, I'm like, really? No way. And they literally had to show me these big uh, A4 printouts they had showing the, uh, the three-wall green screen. And I was like, man, that's just unbelievably good. So there's a scene, I don't want to spoil it in terms of the plot, but if you have seen the film, there's a scene in a courtyard at the end, big plot point, lots of shooting, didn't happen on a real courtyard. And I mm. couldn't believe it. 
but don't watch it before you go ahead and watch the film and then yeah. I think you'll watch the FX guide app uh, afterwards then you're going to go oh wow it's all the more impressive because but you know even you without the VFX the, the, that early shot of uh, the young um, uh, performance of the play you know which yep. is uh, which play yes. was it it was one of the anyway it was just terrific alright well that's it for me and thanks so much see us over at FX guide and Jason you're at Wingrove on Twitter uh, JasonWingrove.com or wing, uh, Twitter.com slash Wingrove or uh, Vimeo.com slash channel slash Wingrove I think and is that where they can see Moving Day uh, yeah if you go to uh, yeah I'm sure that's it if not there'll be a correct um, uh, correct link in the show, show notes, notes to it okay it's, it's worth checking out and uh, you'll see what we're talking about with the uh, the stuff to do with that and Jason I should point out I'm not saying this obviously because I'm your friend but a lot of people have been praising your work on that film since they've uh, been seeing it in the last week so I hope you've been uh, pleased with the reception oh look it's amazing I mean we did it a little while ago and I'd sort of held back and I thought oh I suppose we'll put that on well video. we weren't allowed to for something... the awards right because you were winning yeah. bloody things at festivals right left and centre and uh, and you're not allowed to have it free online until that sort of run its course. Yeah, and, and I you think, did win at quite a few festivals. Yeah, look, it was it was one of those more people's people's choice thing than uh, than than critics, shall we say? <laughs> okay, <laughs> hundred twenty thousand views in about five days. So yeah, very thank well you. done. <laughs> until next time, I'm Mike Seymour. See you. See you. Thanks for listening. Send your questions or comments to rc at fxguide.com. Copyright 2011, FX Guide, LLC.